Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello, I am happy you're here today listening to the Finding Harmony podcast. I am your host, Harmony, and I just can't wait to introduce you to this wonderful woman, an old friend of mine. And by old, I mean we've been friends since... 2012, I believe, or 13. Her name is Kayoko Mitsumatsu. She is the founder, the heart and soul of an incredible charity organization, um, one that you've probably heard me talk about before, as well as probably some other uh, prominent Ashtanga yoga teachers in our community, as we are all ambassadors and support global awareness and outreach uh, for the Yoga Gives Back uh, charity and organization. Um, Yoga Gives Back is growing. It's in 30 countries now. It started from a small, small seed, just an idea, a dream in Kayoko's heart and has grown to an international uh, cause, all creating awareness to help women and children in India. We're going to hear all about that, how her vision grew, why she had the vision in the first place and just what an incredible organization yoga gives back is the good work that they're doing for the cost of one yoga class you can change a life and we're going to hear how and why and what's involved in this podcast episode with kayoko and i know there's a couple events coming up that are really important to yoga gives back there's the global gala which will be in November, and there's also a yoga marathon that's happening. I believe that's October 2nd, being headed up uh, by Eddie Stern, as well as others. Um, So please donate, please join. Um, You can also, if you're a teacher or yoga studio owner, you can always jump on their website and host your own donation class and get members of your community joining, maybe a teacher will donate their time to teach a class and then uh, give that money to Yoga Gives Back to help them really empower uh, women to create businesses in India. And um, I don't know how much you know about microloans, but we're going to talk a lot more about them and how beneficial they actually are to empowering uh, women and communities and then also their children, you know, the uh, investment in their children's education and just uplifting an entire village uh, through this small, small donation that we make in North America goes a long, long way in India. So I'm just thrilled that you're here and so happy to be able to introduce you to Kayoko and Yoga Gives Back if it's new to you definitely check it out. It's an incredible charity organization, especially if you are a yoga practitioner and someone who has benefited personally from the practice of yoga. What better thing to do than give back to Mother India and her people and um, the country that has given us so much through their spiritual heritage. Also, I just want to mention that today is the very last day you can sign up for my Ancient Breathing 2.0 class or course. Um, we're starting live classes today, Sunday, September 18th. Doors close tonight at midnight. You'll be able to catch all of the class videos, live class videos were pre- are recorded and 
in the um, course platform as well as pre-recorded videos describing each of the practices, demonstrating. Um, there's tons of handouts. There's all kinds of information inside this course. It's a week-by-week -week course, so each week you'll have new content released. We're studying the Hatha Pradipika as well as the ancient teachings and practices that come from India on breathwork, on kriyas, uh, pranayama, holding and retaining energy, and why it works to help us sleep better, to balance our nervous system, to help us digest food better, lose weight, uh, manage stress, create more resiliency in our whole system, body, mind, spirit, as well as grow that spiritual energy within ourselves. So eventually, hopefully, one day we too can um, have the experience of awakening, uh, kundalini experience or enlightenment, uh, that Buddha mind, whatever you want to call it. It's a, a, a special, unique, mystical experience that the yogis talk about, that the Buddhists talk about, that is the essence of the pranayama practice, of the breathwork practices, all of the physical and mental and emotional benefits are really the side benefits. Those are just what happens when you start to gather your spiritual energy and gather that prana and collect it within yourself. And by collecting that prana within yourself and building the prana, everything starts to feel better. Everything starts to work better. Your mind is, becomes clearer. You're able to focus better. Your whole life starts to fall into place, not to mention you feel like you're in the flow. You really are connecting to that bigger, broader, uh, ultimate cosmic consciousness, feeling connected with that energy supreme, the energy that is in everything around us, in us. You know, it's an incredible, incredible journey to start to dip your toes into. And so I hope you'd love to dip your toes in with me. Ancient Breathing 2.0, it's closes tonight if you have have a heart calling at all to practice and study and learn more with me this is one of the very best ways to um, do that I'm there for the students inside the course 100% I give it my all and uh, you get my undivided attention so come on in you have a few hours left to join and I would just love to see you there and so now let's uh, head on over and listen to this beautiful conversation with my co-host Russell, of course, and my good friend Kayoko. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with Russell Case. Harmony, I just wanted to ask you uh, uh, good morning. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. Good, nice to see you today. Good Sunday for you. Sunday. Monday. And all of our listeners. You're a day behind. Well, it, our listeners are listening oh, on, on Sunday. Oh, on a Sunday. Yes. That's right. Sunday morning, in <laughs> fact. And uh, I just want to know if have you heard any more feedback about having me removed from the show? Because I knew that we were receiving <laughs> many letters, many. Yeah many letters asking for me to be removed from the show no no nothing nothing as of yet oh you lately. haven't nothing, nothing lately nothing lately no okay okay well um i'll just do my best yeah today um yeah tone it down i will tone it down because our guest today is yeah. from japan oh it's very polite society yes yeah different sense of humor mm. so <laughs> 
Because today we're meeting with Kayoko Mitsumatsu. Mitsumatsu? Did I say it correct? Mitsumatsu. Mitsumatsu. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. How Born, would you How yeah. would you say it? Mitsumatsu Kayoko. Uh, ah, yes. Yeah, Kayoko comes at the end. Mitsumatsu yes, exactly. Kayoko. Exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, but don't yeah. worry, because I, I am now American citizen. So. Yeah. Oh. Now you're in America only. Wow. Yeah, exactly. I, I wanted yeah. to tell you my uh, grandfather was a um, Japanese citizen. Maybe he wasn't I don't think citizen, he was a citizen. But he lived there 18 years in Tokyo. As a foreigner. Wow. 1945, obviously, 1945 to 1963. Uh, oh, my God. So... Yeah. Were you, was he working for the government, U.S. government, or military? He was running a bowling alley. But he was ex-military. <laughs> he was, yeah. not, he was wasn't he? He was uh, hired to run a, a bowling alley. For the military. For the military. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. First bowling in alley in Tokyo. Yeah. I wonder where. Oh, me Do too. Do you know exactly where? That'd be amazing. Yeah, because I just... You know. just, it was very amazing for the whole family. We are from Illinois, which is very rural, very provincial. And he was the first person in our family to bathe every day. Before that, no one, no one had ever taken a shower or at all. And we would have a bath wow. once a week. But when grandpa came back from Japan, everyone started uh, showering. And we're all very proud. Okay. Oh Your grandfather sounds like my father. He took baths twice a day in yeah. the morning and before he goes to bed every yeah. night, yeah. twice a day. But I was born in Japan, in Tokyo, 1960. So your dad was there. We yeah. were there very, at the same close, time. Close by. Yeah. My other grandfather also was there from 45 uh, to 47. But he was a wow. just a driver for the military. But Grandpa oh Lund, God. he was there 18 years. I just want to say, I feel like well, I read through your bio, and one thing that stood out to me was that uh, your grandfather's home and business had been destroyed uh, by the American firebombing. And it's a, it's a shameful thing. You know, it's still America is the only country to have dropped a nuclear weapon or atomic weapon on any other country. And it's a shameful thing. And it's, um, you know, we should always, I think, be mindful of that uh, shame yeah. and apologize when possible. Yeah, thank you. But it's, it, it goes both ways, you know, like Japan did a lot of horrendous, inhumane things in Asia, which mm -hmm. still we, we still ought to apologize a mm -hmm. lot. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, as a citizen, when you look at this war in Ukraine and other countries, citizens always are the ones who mm -hmm. pay the price. It's yeah. not the yeah. leaders who are paying the price, right? So, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because, yeah, my grandfather used to have like um, very successful like rice refinery business downtown Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And there mm -hmm. he had employees and they, he lost everything, right? With the yeah. B-29 bombardment. Yeah. And, um, but after the war, I learned he, he wanted to, no, when he was younger, actually, he wanted to really migrate to U.S. He had a big oh, dream for wow. U.S. Yeah. He once went to Yokohama port and tried to really jump into the, like a trade ship 
to wow. migrate to US, but wow. he had to inherit or succeed his family's business so he couldn't make it. So when actually I really swore to become Japanese citizen in 2008, actually to be able to vote for Obama at that time, um, I really thought about my grandfather's dream. I felt like I'm finally realizing his dream. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's so amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting how your both of your grandfathers were there in the post-World War, even Japan lost the war, of course. Yeah. And, you know, like my mother still tell, used to tell me, she's dead now, but uh, how, you know, American soldiers gave them chocolates, right? Oh. And Japan was so poor yeah. at, after the war, um, we lost everything. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, also U.S. MacArthur and Occupation Army helped Japan to rebuild. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of um, friendship also, and mm. they were, you know, like fun. Yeah. You know, one thing I noticed personally that was quite interesting and also relates to your bio, you know, I lived in uh, Hanguke, I lived in uh, in Korea one year, and of course, oh. even, even in 97, the feeling is quite strong towards Japan, mm-hmm. the very mm-hmm. personal enmity. Uh, they have mm-hmm. towards Japan. Whereas I lived in Taiwan, uh, mm. uh, which is a, an important tourist destination for Japan, the Toroko Gorge. Um, and the Taiwanese are very different. They feel very yeah. differently. They feel so much fondness for Japan and, and what they did to develop Taiwan. And uh, they still have very, um, I think, romantic feelings towards Japan in the way that Americans have towards England. I think mm. it's maybe similar. Interesting. You said your father was born in Taiwan. That was very surprising. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But you mentioned that. You, so we have a lot of connection here. <laughs> um, yeah. Because, yeah, my father, actually my grandfather, my father's father was the head of like the government tobacco factory in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many years, many, many years. So my father was born in Taiwan in 1931, way before the war ended. Yeah. And so they had very good life. They have, my father loved Taiwan. And I used to hear a lot of stories of how they enjoy their lives. But then when Japan lost the war, everything was gone, right? They yeah. they lost everything. So they had to suddenly come back to Japan um, as a returnees, there was a term to use those people who came back from overseas after the war, returnees. and they were treated like second class. So my father, it, it's really interesting how that was because mainland Japanese already lost a lot of them, lost a lot of things, and then everybody was poor. Yeah. And then here comes all these people who were overseas for any reasons, business or government jobs or whatever their status overseas didn't matter anymore when they came back. So um, I heard a lot of hard stories, hardships that my father went through as a junior high school student. Mm -hmm. And also they went back to the family compound in Kyushu, uh, Southern Island, a very, very, you know, countryside. And so he was like beaten up uh, by the kids, you know, everybody was like rough at that time. So, he actually told me one day, if he had gone one more day, he would be killed. So he jumped on a train, to went to Tokyo, 
uh, as I, I think he was in junior high school still last year or something, and he、mm. had his aunt and uncle in Tokyo, so he just went there. And、uh, ever since he he finished high school and college there, and、um, but you know were, these were hard stories, but、uh, they don't this generation they don't want to talk about this.、Uh, and I、mm. read this in his、uh, high school 60th memorial like book. And I said, I just couldn't help crying, you know. And I said, Why don't you tell these things? Things, and he said, He does. He couldn't even read the book because he couldn't stand to read the pain of all the other friends went through、mm-hmm. that they all wrote、mm-hmm. in this book.、Yeah. So it's like、oh. that. And、uh, yeah. So, anyways, and the interesting thing is, like last yesterday, I just yesterday, my step grandson Teddy,、uh, white. Uh, yeah. White kid, he he's、uh, he goes to college in Oregon, and he just had a he loves Chinese and Japanese, so he he's been studying Chinese for seven years. And he just went to Taiwan for like two months for internship,、oh, and、wow. he was just telling me, like you were so saying, like how Taiwanese love Japanese,、mm. and so <laughs> he he immediately had a great time there, and now he wants to go to Japan with me next year. <laughs> oh. oh, amazing! Yeah,、nice. do you go back to But, Japan every、mm-hmm. year or? I used to, yeah. yeah, I used to, but、uh, especially when my parents were getting old, they used to come here too.、Um, but you know, of course, during the pandemic,、uh, yeah. my father died during the pandemic, so I couldn't、oh, even go、sorry. to his funeral.、Oh. Yeah, so and then Japan is still very strict. Yeah, I don't know if you know it. Even <laughs> even if you have family, you have to have a visa to go there. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah it's very strict. So we'll、wow. see. And you would you would、um, be a book, Japanese citizen, right? No, I no.、Uh, I lost my. Oh, you had to give it up to become、you. American. Actually, you know, yeah, Japanese government officially doesn't allow double、ah, citizen, dual、yes. citizenship like many other countries do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.、Um, a lot of people can continue to hold on to the passport, which I didn't. Right. So as a result, I I. I'm. I don't have Japanese citizenship, which caused a lot of pain in the neck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because as a foreigner now, you can't even open a bank bank account in Japan. There are a lot of restrictions. Restrictions. Wow. It's very strict. And、yeah. now trying to go back to Japan, I have to have a visa. Right. Um. I I hope it will loosen up a little bit. Yeah. But COVID、oh. is still really bad there. So. Yeah. yeah. Your mother is there right now. Oh, she's passed away she about passed five or six away. years ago. Yeah. Okay. And my father died also. So yeah, yeah. I only yeah. have my brother and my sister-in-law there. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. My my intention is to become a Canadian citizen, and I think about I think about. Oh, I know you、things. are. No. I am a、uh, American.、Um, is oh, I see. Meguke. I don't know what they call it in、uh, in Japan. Uh, American, but Beikokujin.、Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's close. It's close to it's Korean. Close to Korean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.、Oh. It means it means a beautiful land person in、uh, no, Korea. No rice. Oh, that's right. In Japanese, also, it, it's somehow Beikoku is like a rice land. Rice, rice land. land. Rice land. Rice country. Nice. Yeah, yeah. A rice country person. Versus in Korea, they call us a beautiful person. Beautiful is, country. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's beautiful、nice. land person. Yeah, that's different.、Yeah. Rice country person. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I I'm fr- I grew up in New Orleans, which is rice country. So that makes interesting. That makes sense. Yeah.、Mm. Actually, my husband is from Louisiana, half Cajun,、no. half Lebanese. No, he is. Lebanese Cajun. We have、Lebanese、a lot of connections.、Cajun. What、yeah. part of New Orleans proper? No,、uh, Eunice, Louisiana. Eunice, yeah, I know the Eunice. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm in from a really Spydell, nice... which is a little north. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Are you Asian too? Uh, no, I'm white. Yeah, <laughs> very, very, very white, very Swedish, kind of a little Jewish. A Swedish. Yeah. Interesting. You know, but, you know, Cajuns are white too because they're French Canadians. Yeah, French. Like French, Arcadia, right? Spanish. Yeah, but yeah. French, Spanish, black. Uh, no, that's a... that's Creole. That's Creole. Creole. Yeah, okay. You have, you have I, to talk to my husband. I accept. Yeah, you have to I talk accept to my your definition of Creole. It's exactly. very the the Creole as a word is a kind of loose basket, you know, of everything. Mm -hmm. So, um, the Cadians, yeah, they're properly is... from Canada, but everything is mixing so much, you know. Yeah. 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 It's a long. It's a, another yeah, side another side subject. Side. How did yeah. you meet your husband? Yeah, from Louisiana. Yeah. In so India? You met him? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh. <laughs> no, no, I met him in Los Angeles. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Through my first husband. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I met true. Harmony it's through true. her first husband. <laughs> 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 things See, sometimes things happen. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So my parents were actually at my first wedding here in Los Angeles and met oh, Ken. Amazing. My current husband yeah and uh, when i was going through my divorce my he was my only like a really great friend and so oh, that's nice. how yeah 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 oh, that's it's very, nice. very nice yeah, yeah it's been over 20 years now so yeah wow. and i inherited his son his daughter and now i have five grandchildren that's wow. amazing. Yeah. amazing yeah so uh, their life is very full yeah. <laughs> well, why don't I, I'm going to uh, read a little, a little intro about you because some people, okay. don't, <laughs> some people don't know who you are. Exactly. So they're like, who is this Kyoko that's speaking? <laughs> so you're born in Tokyo, 1960, when the country was rebuilding after World War II. You moved to Osaka at the age of 13. I visited Osaka once. It was very beautiful. And um, and then you were working, you grew up after you graduated, you were working with the Japanese National Public TV. And somehow, you can tell us how, was I think you moved to London, England. Were you living in London, England as the ambassador, right? The, uh, no, not the ambassador. That's attache <laughs> to the ambassador. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and making documentary films. For Japanese television. Is that all correct? Did I get it all right? <laughs> yeah, I didn't make documentaries when I was in London, but after I moved to Los Angeles, I started again because that okay. was my profession to begin with. Yeah. So you're making the documentary films in Japan for the Japanese television, and then you got a new job in London. Yeah, that's it. Amazing. Amazing. Right. And then how did you get to LA? How did you move to America and become an American yeah, citizen? So, <laughs> yeah. So I met my ex in London, who yeah. was also a TV producer there. So, and he was going back to London. I had no intention of going back to Japan. Then I left Japan for England. Mm -hmm. I told my mother that I'm not coming back here forever. I, I was so mean. I was, I had it. I had enough. Yeah. So um, I packed everything and I, somehow sent everything to England and then I decided to move to LA because it sounded interesting so I actually 
uh, applied for UCLA film film course, uh, like a oh, cool. graduate school program, yeah. which I didn't pass. I didn't pass anyways, but I moved here. And because I already had a career with NHK, Japanese public television, before I moved to London, um, I told everyone that I'm doing independent work. Yeah. So people started asking me to do um, independent producing and, you know, coordination research directing so i did that about 25 years since i wow. moved here oh, wow yeah. wow incredible yeah, we covered a lot of stories yeah, i went to canada a couple of times too mm-hmm. oh cool yeah what was it what was it was there something specific like growing up in japan that made you want to get out of japan get out of that culture and like never return it sounds like i think it's the sexism <laughs> yeah well, let's let's hear from <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah to make it very simple i always uh, growing up like my 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 mother especially make me do re- dishes whereas my brother was always like okay studying right. and mm. like during junior high school so my brother went to the best like high school best elementary school to begin with whereas i went to like a local public school right mm-hmm. and uh he went to like elitist from the beginning till now. Like he went just elitist, elitist course. Whereas right. I, as a daughter, was supposed to move with my father's job. So I, I moved every year during my junior high school because my father was a banker and he was transferred to different branches. So I moved to Osaka to South and come back to Tokyo. I went to three different schools. And... Uh, that's, so I always thought, you know, what's, you know, we had a very different life, my brother mm-hmm. and my sister, my, myself, only two yeah. years difference. And I just always questioned to my mother, like, why am I doing this and why he's doing this? And the qu- answer always was because you're a girl and because right. this is tradition. And I hated this answer so much. Mm-hmm. But what do, can you do? Because that's <laughs> the norm, right? That's how everybody lives. So you, you, you can't question. But then I got a chance to go to Australia for a year as a Rotary Club exchange student in high mm-hmm. school. And I lived with four different families, um, all like working class, nice Rotary Club families, both mother and father were working. Um, and uh, there I found this uh, chart, like a short chart where every day my brother host brother and host sister you know all teenagers had exact same amount of work like washing dishes taking trash you know all these things boys and girls Mm -hmm. are doing exactly the same amount of work and i said this is my answer you know there's no (laughs) gender difference here Mm -hmm. and uh, so i i realized oh my questions found answers and it was really huge moment. That was an enlightenment moment in my life. Whoa. So that gave me a huge self-confidence that it's okay to have questions, even if you don't find answers right there. Mm-hmm. Maybe answers are not there. Yeah. <laughs> looking for answers in the wrong place. Right. I, I think then, you yeah. also had a, an experience that informed Yoga Gives Back and your maybe desire to live away from Japan. When you lived in Brazil as a child yeah. as well, and that also yeah. informed things for you, if that's right. Yeah, you- exactly. So I uh, lived in Brazil from the after, right after I stayed in Australia for a year, so 78, 1978 to 98, long time ago, yeah. again, because of my father's work. And there, for the first time in my life, I saw the real poverty, which mm. 
you know, growing up in a very middle class Japan, uh, there were some poverty, but not to the extent of like India or Brazil, you know, developing countries mm-hmm. uh, have, uh, you know, it, it's just in front of you every day. You know, every time we stop, children come to ask for money or sell things, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, the lifestyle, you know, is so different. So I learned a lot about also there are some very wealthy people too. So mm-hmm. how how there is accumulation of wealth into very small percentage percentage of the family you know population is the other big population still struggling so much um so that was my first exposure to a real social divide economic divide yeah yeah and that really yeah. actually gave me a really f- strong feeling of working for public television and making documentary about to voice the voiceless in my <laughs> mm. immature uh, you know idealistic sense as a college mm-hmm. student i that's what, what i felt to do so i went and that's how i entered a japanese public television amazing mm. what kind of documentaries did you make in japan what were the topics yeah so there are a lot yeah so um i worked there for seven years like a slave literally like a slave <laughs> <laughs> it's because you know how japanese people like to work i yeah. think the culture is changing today but it was before even even when i entered there um, equal opportunity law for the men and mm-hmm. women was still not ratified by Japanese government. Wow. So I, as a woman employee, I had a time card, which is different from male employees. I could only charge my over hours up to certain hours every week. So I, I had to wow. volunteer. I had to work unpaid so many hours every week. It was unbelievable. Wow. So anyways, <laughs> that is, uh, at first, yeah, yeah. Slave Can you wage. imagine it was 1980s, early, early 1980s. Wow. And um, our, so when I entered as a producer director, there were 48 of us out, fresh out of college. Mm-hmm. They hired only three of us are women. And that was like their, their law, not law, but their limit. policy. Policy. Yeah, yeah, right. they, yeah. they limit uh, women's employees less than 10%. Wow. Can you imagine that? So that was the time. <laughs> so I entered uh, to the work, workforce, you know, like it's a very liberal uh, place to work. You know, it's a journalistic, very liberal place, but culture is very sexist. You know, right. I was surrounded yeah. by sexist guys and uh, they taught me a lot. So I have, you know, I have to be very grateful for all my uh, colleagues, but uh, it is a very sexist culture. Yeah, and but, but I did a lot of programs about about things like that, and also like people with disability. I've, I've done some documentaries with homes with severely disabled people, and I learned, I've learned so much because I I just grew up in a very cocooned, privileged kind of situation, mm-hmm. which I so I didn't know much about Japan, Jap- the reality of Japan, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have learned a lot by by ma- making documentaries and. You know, meeting yeah. people all over the country, and yeah, yeah, amazing. Mm. It must have been very, um, like to see. It's so interesting when you leave your culture and like go into another culture, and then look back on your culture from that new lens. You notice things even more sometimes because, like you were saying before, your mother 
would just say, oh, well, you're a girl. That's the way it's done. And if you have no reference point that it could be done another way, you just accept that as like, oh, okay, well, th this doesn't seem fair, but I guess this is how it happens. What other option is there? And then when you get the get a different lens, you realize, oh, wait a second. It doesn't have to be like this. There's other places in the world that aren't like this way. It's yeah. exactly right. And that that's what you said, Harmony. That that is so important, isn't it? I you know, in like today's world can there is so so much device divisiveness. And I keep thinking, as a human being, to be able to imagine the other side mm. or think about outside of your own box is the most important kind of um, quality we should all try to grow within us. I think the lack of imagination comes yeah. from being indifferent and being yeah. ignorant, you know, and mm -hmm. then just stick to your own standards, own value systems, and then you never get out of your own cocoon and uh, find out there are other values, other point of views in this world, in this life. Yeah. So, and I think that's the only way we can bridge each other, to yeah. have imagination. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the imagination, the empathy kind of go together. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's It's so interesting how we get from you as a film producer uh, and uh, a young Japanese woman making films, spending some time in Brazil, to now being the organizer of something like Yoga Gives Back. And it seems <laughs> like a very, the epic story of your life, uh, so to speak. And, and so I'm wondering if you can talk about how that initially started for you, that you're say, maybe in London, maybe in LA, I'm not sure. And something starts to shift where uh, yoga becomes important to you. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure, you know, you guys and a lot of people who love yoga can, you know, appreciate and share the same feeling how yoga changes your life. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and this really happened to me. So, uh, in 2006, you know, I always loved exercise all my life. So I used to practice like Taekwondo here even before I started yoga. And I, I'm like a kind of addictive personality, like all the Ashtanga oh. practitioners. Yeah. <laughs> so I studied five years in, it's a Hollywood style Taekwondo, but I got black belt. Wow. And then I, in in then LA. I got yeah, in LA, okay. in my thirties, late thirties. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, and then I got kind of disappointed because I was looking for like spiritual uh, growth within myself with this very physical <laughs> practice, which I thought it might they might teach me, but which I didn't learn. Uh, so I was looking for something always, but anyways, with my job, I was doing a documentary in, the, in 2006 about social entrepreneurship and microfinancing. So I've mm. learned so much about Dr. Mohamed Yunus, who um, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 for his uh, revolutionary microfinancing. Yeah. What was and his so name was again? Very, Dr. Uh, Dr. Mohamed Yunus. Yunus. From, okay. uh, yeah, from Bangladesh. Okay. Um, he's amazing uh, inspiration to me. Mm -hmm. And basically I learned like with $10 a month, you give it to a woman in the developing countries, 
they can start their own business instead of being at the bottom of the ladder always and being uh, mm-hmm. taken away, exploited by middleman middle um, mm-hmm. as a shark, you know. So mm-hmm. I learned that the whole revolution of bringing, you know, uplifting the poverty, poor people with small loans, which traditional banking never does, right? Never mm-hmm. has done mm-hmm. because you need collateral to yeah. borrow money. So if you're poor to begin with, you can never get loan. So that's a big, um, you know, magical revolution with microfinancing. So I learned that. And I was doing this documentary, I come back to LA. I started practicing Ashtanga yoga and I'm feeling great every day, sweating <laughs> and feeling happy. And I realized one day that I, I was spending like $10 a month or $10 a uh, $10 a class oh, at that time. Is, <laughs> yeah. yeah, a class. And $65 for nice pants. You yeah. know, it would be $200 mm-hmm. today. Yeah, they'd be exactly double that right? at least. <laughs> yeah, definitely double. Yeah. So, um, and a lot of people feeling great and everything. And there were a lot of charity classes for uh, HIV, breast cancer, animal rights. But there was nothing that really focused on poverty issues in India. And I had never been to India, but because of this story that I did with the microfinancing, I knew that India was kind of neat. India was also a place where microfinancing was growing, you know, for, mm-hmm. with huge poverty issues. Mm-hmm. So I talked to my teacher, Ashtanga teacher, about this idea of how about doing something of giving back to India. And we started talking and brainstorming and, uh, our mantra for the cost of one yoga class, you can change your life oh, came up. <laughs> and then, and then uh, interestingly, this, I really feel very strongly about Like I started so talking about this in Los Angeles. Nobody stopped me about this idea. Everybody said, that's a great idea. Yoga teacher or studio owner or business yeah. owners. Um, everybody was very supportive from the day one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my first fundraising class was like we had raffle and I had to bake cookies and I collected my Christmas in leftover Christmas gifts as gifts, you know, yeah, <laughs> prizes. Yeah. <I> <laughs> that kind, that kind yeah. of a fundraiser. And uh, very soon somebody reached the Kino, McGregor, she gave us yeah. her first DVD as a oh, raffle nice. gift. <laughs> nice. Things like that. Yeah. So that was the beginning. Yeah. And then... So long story short, first eight years, I just was working as a producer, director for NHK, doing a lot of documentaries. And then I was growing this organization because I loved, I I just loved the way how it was going. And so many people responded positively. Mm -hmm. And then in eight years, I realized uh, this organization has grown too big and I couldn't do both. And I was ready to drop my profession as a documentary filmmaker, working for public television. And I really wanted to focus on YGB. So mm-hmm. I, uh, that's, that's, I, that's how I did in eight years ago. I just completely became, um, full-time employee at that time, not employee yet. Um, it took another few years because we didn't have enough money to employ me, right. but now I'm the only, <laughs> I, I, I'm officially an employee of yeah. Yoga Gives Back and I'm committed hundred percent. Amazing. Oh. So you like ran it at the beginning, just like offering some donation classes and like getting some other people involved and then you would collect the money. And then how would you distribute it to the women and children in India? How did you like start in with the microfinancing? Yeah. Yeah, So I didn't, you know, I didn't 
know anybody in India at that time. So luckily, um, through my documentary making, I made some contacts of um, Indian Americans who who were working in a microfinancing field. Around oh, that time, cool. it was a very, you know, very pioneering and cutting edge kind of field. Mm-hmm. So um, I talked to him, like, I want to do this and give back to India as microfinancing resources. So he introduced me to Grameen Foundation, which is Dr. Yunus's big global foundation based in Washington, D.C., replicating Dr. Yunus's microfinancing in country, dozens of countries, helping millions of people now. So very quickly, I got introduced to Grameen Foundation. Their executive director in on the West Side said, yes, we want to be connected. So we were actually officially, Yoga Gives Back was officially posted on their website as one organization whose, whose donation goes directly to their microfinancing institutions in India. Mm-hmm. So I felt very good because now I can be responsible where the money goes. Right. It was like, first year was like $4,000, you know, 5000 yeah. then 5000 like that. Yeah. But at least I knew where the money, actually money was going there. But the problem in two years was like, they couldn't tell me exactly who was getting the money. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, yeah. that was not good to me. I, because of my film background, I always wanted to connect people directly. Right. I wanted to yeah. go there talk to them so i started looking for empowerment yes yes Mm -hmm. in both ways you Mm -hmm. know like people who give want to know what's going on right with their money so it took about two years but i kept searching searching and finally actually it was another ashtanga yoga studio in new york um i forgot the name of it but it was in the beautiful studio in yoga sutra maybe Yes, right across the street from New York Public Library. Yeah, Yoga right? Sutra. On the second floor, mm-hmm. Yoga Sutra. So I used to, when I go there, I used to practice there. And at the reception, there is Sophie Hubbard, who is now our ambassador, and she happens to be Martha Stewart's niece. But, anyways. Oh, wow. Long story. <laughs> yeah. Martha Stewart's niece. Oh, that's, yeah, that's quite a good connection. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> But I, I started talking to her and she said, I, actually, I have an organization that I support in India. So you should, and I have some contacts. You should talk to this lady. You should talk to them. That's the beginning of how I got in really, that was really a breakthrough for me to get connected to the really trustworthy uh, two NGOs, non-governmental organizations, one in West Bengal, one in Karnataka, outside of Mysore. Yeah. Uh, and they are the organization we we have developed programs over the years, over ten years now. And I love the leaders yeah. of these organizations. They are like my spiritual gurus. Uh, nice. Oh, you know, yeah, they really commit themselves. Their lives are totally into empowering really underserved communities. Yeah, mm. incredible. Were they? They're also doing the microfinancing then. Yeah, in in West Bengal, yes, but in. Uh, Outside Mysore, it's more like orphanage and a okay. scholarship for education and women's yeah. empower, like a girl's home kind of thing. So. Right, mm-hmm. a girl's home, yeah. Oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's amazing. I'm, my mother started a business in the, in the 60s. Uh, she was making, uh, she had a pillow company and a pillow factory making giant hippie pillows. And um, for whatever reason they struggled to get loans from traditional sources from banking sources Mm. 
And so instead, they went to um, these predatory loan organizations in Chicago. And as it turned out, they were they were run by the mob because the intention oh was God. to exploit people who yes. came to them for loans. And then the loans were 20%. And even though the company had a big success, my mom got the pillow on the Johnny Carson show oh, in wow. 1968. <laughs> and then there was Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon, and they were bouncing on the pillow. And uh, it was <laughs> very exciting. But when they came back to Chicago, the 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 mob came to them and threatened violence to get the money back. And of course, they didn't oh, have wow. the money because it hadn't quite started production in a, in a big scale. So they took the company. Instead, oh, wow. they took they took it over and they tried to make all of the money themselves, which was the idea from the start of the predatory loan. And this was happening hundreds and hundreds of times throughout Chicago as a kind of scam. And it's it's amazing just how, you know, that of course wrecked my mom's early professional life. Yeah. One of many times her life was wrecked. But um <laughs> it just it just strikes me that that how often vulnerable women can be exploited when they're trying to start out with a, a company with a great idea with a purpose and then they become abused in the process. Yeah. And I, I think it's not just women, you know, in this situation, like both men and women who doesn't have back backing, right? Collateral mm -hmm. or backing. Mm -hmm. Traditional banking just didn't give any chance to them. And that's that's the way how the society works for a long mm -hmm. maybe to even today. Like they are supposed to stay in the, at the bottom of the ladder, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. And uh, in, even in India, actually in Chicago, actually I did a documentary, so I know south of Chicago, where uh, it's predominantly black population there. That's right. They start. There is a company, uh, microfinancing company, who started microfinancing early on. I, I forgot the name of it, but it was very impressive the way mm -hmm. how they did did it. So maybe it was after your mom's time, or I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. these sh loan sharks were the problem within microfinancing too, um, mm. around 2010, um, these uh, people took advantage of illiterate farmers and they, they made it look like microfinancing. But interest rate, you talked about 20%, but they were charging up to 75%. Oh, my 75%. God. And there was a suicide among these uh, poor farmers in I India. I remember this. And I so, remember this remember? story, yeah. Yes. So the government have to intervene and regulate yeah. the interest. I think the maximum cap was set to 24% or something like that. But mm -hmm. there was a big scam. There, yeah. so, so I was glad I didn't actually um, work with uh, microfinancing for-profit organizations because they saw that as an investment opportunity, right? Yeah. We yeah. worked with an NGO who didn't, um, charge interest, but they wanted to use the system to uplift the poorest women, and they charge. You know, we we work this together. They charge fifty rupees a month, not as an interest, but as a savings requirement, so that they save fifty rupees towards their daughter's future education, which is much better than charging interest. And we supported the administrative cost 
um, yeah. with our funding and like you guys all supported this. So we are now yeah, supporting amazing. about 550 women now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. Mm. Yeah, I that is such a big problem actually in India is the loan sharks that it's not just the farmers, it's all kinds of poor people. If they don't yes, yes. have money to pay for things like food or clothes or rent or whatever it is that they might need, um, they borrow the money from these independent loan people because the bank won't give them a loan or a line of credit or any kind of income. And then when they do get the money and the job, they spend like all of that money trying to repay the interest basically. And they never repay the principal and they're just indebted for life to Mm -hmm. the loan sharks. It's really a crazy, crazy system. It doesn't sound too different from the American education system. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit. To be honest. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. To take an 18 year old and to uh, sign them up for a hundred thousand dollar loan seems insane. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But at least the interest is a little bit more manageable. The interest is compounded yeah. into the principal oh, yeah, yeah. every year. Yeah. And so when I was when I was done, my original, you know, fifty five thousand dollar loan became a hundred. Yeah. You know, that's it's that's quite amazing. Normal. Yeah. 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 But but this is exactly why microfinancing, when it's done properly, is a huge um you know, tool to empower people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Helpful. Helpful. And also giving, like you say, giving people the skills to create Mm -hmm. their own income and then hire other people to, you know, like, and it's, it's been proven over and over again that when women become business owners and you give money to women, they hire other women and they support their families and their children and like the money goes to the support of the family and the community um, exactly in a much more expansive way than when men are in charge i hate to say it but it's my (laughs) my mother's company hired all women that's really true women hire other women it's just the way it goes (laughs) and that's exactly what dr Yunus told me like he didn't start as a female like Mm-hmm. Um, feminist, you know, feminist movement mm-hmm. activist. He just he was an economist who just wanted to give chance for poor people. So he gave fifty percent to men, fifty percent to women in the seventies in Bangladesh when they were going through famine and everybody was struggling. Yeah. And like in ten years, he discovered that if you give money to women, they like you said, they use it for family and not. For themselves but if you give it to men they use it for drinking and gambling yes <laughs> so that's, why... that's tended to be true in my case yeah. <laughs> that's why microfinancing became like empower women's empowerment yeah. tool you know yeah. but it was it didn't start that way yeah it that's, a, the, the that's a fascinating uh experiment <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah. It's incredible. And also one more thing while talking about microfinancing, I want to emphasize the importance of creating a small group of peers like this. Mm. Like imagine like in a rural village of India where women, you know, most of them don't have education. They were supposed to stay inside the house, do the chores, take care of children. Suddenly they have this peer group to make candles or to do whatever together. Mm -hmm. So they become the real um, self-help group. And yeah. this empowerment 
They can talk about domestic violence. They can talk about any issues. And they have been helping um, like child marriage or human trafficking and things like that um, within the groups. So I have seen that that is another huge bonus. And Dr. Yunus also talked about that in his book. Yeah, yeah, How, that community support. And yes, then all of a sudden yes. you're outside of the home, so you're not like alone in the home doing the chores with maybe one other exactly. person. But now you have a community where you're able to talk freely because it's all women. (laughs) And then you get the support of other women who also want to uplift you and make sure you're in a safe environment and a good environment. And then you feel stronger. So then you can stand up for yourself a little bit more or have the courage to do the thing that you didn't, you wouldn't have had just being alone. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It is a real empowerment. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. I don't mean to to be too off topic. I'm I'm just curious about your your first trip to India and what that experience was like for you and and did you ever find yourself part of the the community in Gokulam and in Mysore were you ever a, a part of that Ashtanga yoga um experience was that because I feel like yoga gives back was a was a big part for a lot of people like who were in the Ashtanga seat in Mysore people talked about yoga gives back a lot. That's so nice to hear. Well, actually, I myself have never been a part of Goklam community. Mm. I have visited there many times uh, to solicit Sharath to become a sponsor and <laughs> things like that. That's good. Mm. <laughs> I did like twice. And I took one time, I was lucky. Um, we always going through my soul like two days or three days, uh, you know, in between our visits. Mm-hmm. So, um, but one time I was able to take um, a class, um, Sharad's grandmother's class. What's the name? I think. Saraswati. Saraswati's yeah, yeah. class. I was very fortunate to do that. But usually we just have to rest because we stay in an orphanage just before that. Usually, like mm-hmm. stay in a you know room with a hot, you know bucket only. Sometimes yeah. no hot water and mm-hmm. so people just need to relax a little bit. It's very emotionally yeah. also intense. As yeah. much as exciting, it's emotionally intense. So yeah, we usually rest a little bit in my swim. Just walk around go climb and look at the, how it is. Mm-hmm. You know. It's a nice resting place. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Palm Springs how, nice. how I always felt. Yeah. 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 A little desert, nice, desert nice like a uh, vegetarian salads and like yeah. you know, food and stuff like that. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I need to get some massage. But uh, yeah, so my first impression is uh, in 2007. Uh, so I first, for the first time, I met with these uh, women of um, microloan recipients. And uh, I really remember how they all told me, I don't want my children to live like me. And that was really a sad comment. And uh, it just hit me very hard how miserable their lives have been. And now they got these microloans. Their dream is to give their children, either boy or girl, their children the best education possible so that they can get out of the situation and create much better life that everybody deserves. Mm. So that's why we also started to create um, She, which is a scholarship for higher education. Now we give it to 400 disadvantaged youths with five-year college degree um, scholarship, which has been a phenomenal program 
And I have been very inspired with the people who are graduating with this program. They're becoming real change makers. That's amazing. We want to, yeah, support young people and so on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause that's a, I mean, that's such a gift, um, especially for the, like the lower class, lower caste, um, you know, Indian boys and girls where their families, you know, potentially don't have money for college and no, nothing. Yeah. For nothing. For nothing. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. And so to be able to, if you've done well in school and you have those grades and you have that ambition to be able to have access to a scholarship that's, that's going to pay for that for you so that really that does open so many doors. Yeah. yeah, we've seen this so much. And, you know, the first person was not, is now a doctor, medical wow. doctor in Bangalore, emergency doctor. And wow. he was on the Indian Times because he was volunteering to help during the COVID crisis last year. Yeah. He was volunteering and he helped like a very rare case of newborn child with COVID. Wow. So he was quoted in the newspaper and we were so proud. It's one of my films. Um, I followed his life since 2007. Wow. So uh, I'm so proud of the, his achievement. And uh, yeah, so if you're wow. interested, check out YGB Films. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I, uh, I'm just, I, I have to, immediately when I hear about a, a physician and the specialty, <laughs> I, I immediately translated that into potential income. Because <laughs> that's my mother's <laughs> current company is rec- recruiting doctors. And so... I think about what your investment in the child was. How much was the scholarship? Yeah, so his case was very special because he, um, his mom was a microloan borrower that from I met first time in 2007. And his, he wanted to go to medical school, master's degrees. That was 3000 a year, which we've never, you know, right now, regular students is 250 a year. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if American you go to dollar. medical school... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, American yeah. dollars, but still three thousand a year for medical school right. master's so degree. Here, it's like one tenth, right? One tenth. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't less know. Less than that, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A year for medical school. It's, yeah, uh, maybe one day. Um, <laughs> one day. Yeah. One day. Uh, yeah. So yeah. three thousand dollars a year. How many years did you invest? I think I think his case was like three or four years in oh masters, and he went. To, yeah. But now today he is so successful and yeah. uh, he wants to go back to his village and create uh, a clinic for poor people wow. so it's that am- they can become cancer free. It's amazing <laughs> to me because it's, it's for, for $12,000, you've created an opportunity for that young man to make over half a million dollars a year in income in the United <laughs> States. And it's, it's just an extraordinarily significant achievement and it's and replicable yeah. and not for very much of a cost yeah i don't know if he will make that much money though in, in, in india no. not in india no, no. but, but still, um, yeah, even no. if it was even if it was a hundred thousand dollars a year the, yeah the situation dollars it's incredible the situation in the united states is so dire that very soon they'll have to change the visa laws for physicians because we cannot we cannot meet the needs of our patient base. Uh, half of right. the population of doctors are retiring. They are baby boomers. Mm. They're retiring. And we are not producing the physicians that we need in mm. any way, shape, or form to reproduce that 
that sheer vast number of retiring doctors. So soon, That's you know, crazy. doctors like from India or, or Canada will, will, will be recruited to come to the United States, yeah, Mexico. Mexico, Costa Rica. Philippines, then, right? Yeah. There are many countries, by the way. And then, so, <laughs> the, so you know, a doctor... Uh, like your like your your recipient, I mean, very soon it'll be very quite easy for him to come to the United States and make half a million. Five hundred thousand dollars is is not you easy. Know, but, but this is, I know, but this is the interesting thing. So I take um, I now take like ten ambassadors or supporters on a mm-hmm. Seva trip, um, and the last trip or two trips ago before COVID, one teacher, one one uh, ambassador asked this doctor, Guru Prasad would you like to come to LA? And he Mm. said, no, thank you. (laughs) He said, no. And I was so happy to hear that because he said, I have too much work here. I'm not interested in going to other countries. And I'm like, in this particular person also is so spiritual. You know, Mm. I always wonder where does it come from? But he says things like, um, uh, what's the word? Um, you know, we are all one. Mm. Basta Iva you know, when I'm interviewing him and suddenly he, he'll say things like that. We have, we believe in this. We are all in one. We are all one, no matter how poor, how wealthy yeah. you are, you are support, you know, so you have to have right to receive medical care. And I am interested in helping poor people in my country. So I'm like, wow, good for you. Incredible. Yeah. But you know, so the stories like this, I always go to India and like talk to these kids and they always teach me something very profound. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, it's, it's an, it's an incredible country that way, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the culture in many ways is infused with, especially I think amongst uh, people that aren't, aren't so well off, that aren't so wealthy. It's like the spiritual life is their richness it is their wealth yeah. and yes. and it's like the the one thing that they have that that really like keeps them going and keeps them you know hoping and like existing and it's just such a rich spiritual life and experience because the wealth isn't there in other ways it's not you know being filled that that hole, I guess, inside of of human beings isn't being filled with stuff, mm-hmm. right? Because there isn't exactly. the money for the stuff. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. being filled with that energy, with that connection, with that that deep, deep understanding of of life mm-hmm. and humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's it's mm-hmm. powerful to connect to it and with it yeah. when you're there, which is connecting to those people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when we go to orphanage, you see a child has his or her entire belongings can fit in this kind of square cube, mm. you know, cubicle, yeah. this this size. They have nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. So whereas if I go to, you know, my grandkids' house or room, it's filled yeah. with toys. A whole room is full of oh, toys. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. I'm not saying, you know, we have devoted both our entire in- basement to our child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Exactly. And you can't blame children or, you know, this culture for that because that's the culture, right? But mm-hmm. when, I think that's, again, it's very important to understand other cultures mm-hmm. who can live with this, not culture, but the situation where she, the child is only available, you know, she he can only own this much, but he is happy. He is healthy. 
yeah. right? She or he is healthy and happy. And so, and you learn so much, like you said, when you don't have that much materialistic distractions, something, something more important shows up in your mm-hmm. life and you, mm-hmm. you prioritize that. And I, I think that's so important. I have this conversation always with this director of the orphanage, which is like, I love, I love to do that every time I go there. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Are you planning another trip to go back to India anytime soon? Yeah. So, yeah, I wish you guys could come one day. <laughs> um, it. Um, we was hoping to do save a trip this December, but, you know, this COVID situation is so unpredictable still. Mm-hmm. And we go to such remote places. If somebody gets yeah. sick or if somebody brings the infection to the villagers, Mm-hmm. You know, what can we do, right? Yeah. So I am holding off right now, maybe next January. And we make it like a fundraising trip. So we are asking people to join, to raise funds to join. Because it's mm-hmm. a very special trip. There is nothing yeah. like this. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we, I hope, I hope, I hope we can do this next year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. So tell us what's it like being the, the sole, I think you're the sole employee of your NGO, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the founder, the owner, operator, the emailer, the, the, the social media manager. <laughs> what is it like, like running your own charity organization and like, you know, having to, I mean, I just imagine we did that one charity that was the 24 hour fundraiser and it was like so much admin administration work and yeah. like, you were literally yeah. up awake for 24 hours <laughs> uh, yeah but it was a lot leading well, up to it also <laughs> yeah yeah amazing you stayed up almost 24 <laughs> hours to host that um yeah but uh, you know i must admit i'm supported by so many volunteers and we have now some paid team you know julie esther who are the core people we have and some you know accounting services helping and board of directors helping and many ambassadors helping like you mm-hmm. harmony so it's not like i'm doing everything by myself this uh branching out yes effect is all thanks to you guys like this this show you know i'm i'm getting so much support i'm so grateful um so like doing uh, administrative things and marketing things definitely <laughs> takes time. <laughs> I, yeah, I try to rest my brain during the night, which sometimes becomes difficult, <laughs> but I try to, um, yeah. but then yoga practice helps, um, right. And meditation yeah. helps physical exercise definitely helps. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, I'm just so happy that I'm doing this. I'm so grateful. I just feel blessed that I found this life mission that i'd like to continue until uh, th- my last breath if uh, my brain is functioning properly <laughs> mm-hmm. i, I at, at some point i have to pass this on to somebody but uh, i'm 62 now so i think i can do at least at least 10 to 20 years yeah, maybe. For sure. yeah, right? you have a lot of vitality um, a lot of yoga practice <laughs> helping you <laughs> exactly. Yama, meditation That's you're doing true. all the things <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but uh, yeah so it's busy but just like everything else i guess so it's nothing special it's just um i just want more and more people to join us and understand that the, this is part of very important yoga practice. I never, I never 
knew mm-hmm. like um, things like this when I started. I didn't know the word karma or seva when mm-hmm. I started. I learned later on that, oh, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, if you benefit from yoga practice, I think it's just natural that you want to give back. Yeah. Because you, how can you be so healthy and happy all by yourself, right? It's true. It's, true. <laughs> it's like the the bodhisattva vow of of uh, coming back and being reborn until all beings are liberated. And you were born Buddhist into a Buddhist sort of family, right? Yeah, like just like any other Japanese people. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we are just born like Buddhist and die Buddhist, or we are born as Shinto, and I don't know. Basically, growing up, I just go to temples during funerals, and I meet monks only at the funerals, and they they say things that doesn't make sense. <laughs> so really, after because you can't understand what they're reading, like sutras in the archaic right. language, you you don't understand what they're saying, and their sermons are not really understandable a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so it was like very hierarchical and very um, patriarchal kind mm-hmm. of situation. Whereas that's why I'm so grateful for yoga too. Since I started yoga practice 15 years ago, I met teachers who teach me Buddhism and. Now there are so many online classes. Like I try to take this like Bodhisattva course I'm taking yeah. this summer. Um, it's still very deep and I don't understand everything, but at least it opened my eyes and heart what they're really teaching me. And why didn't they? Like I, I was so disappointed. I didn't know that we all have Buddha nature within mm-hmm. us. Just mm-hmm. like Hinduism talk about Brahman and Atman. Yeah. Buddhism also talk about this. And so we have something good in ourselves from the beginning. So we are supposed to strive to live up to it, right? But Mm -hmm. why we didn't learn things like this is most important thing (laughs) when we were growing up. We never, I never knew this until recently, like five Mm -hmm. years ago or something. (laughs) It's always deeply radical when a a church speaks in the language of the people Mm. and not in Mm. the uh, esoteric language that is Mm. uh, impenetrable to the people, you know, whether it's, it's Latin or Greek or, or what have you, or, or poly Uh, or high high English, high English or poly (laughs) You know, it's but when you make a concerted effort to speak in the language of the people who are listening, and then, then truly you are creating a, a more beneficial society. You're not just yeah. exploiting a society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's why it's radical, I guess. You mm-hmm. make it contemporary, right? So you have mm-hmm. to make a decision what to say and mm-hmm. what terms you use. But that's mm-hmm. the way. That's the only way to get. <laughs> message of course yeah and i like that i like that um i guess analogy or or that similarity between between the two things we're talking about where one is sort of ritualistic and then one is like embodied and felt and i think our yoga practice can also be like that right it can be like very ritualistic and and separate and isolating of ourselves or like divorced from culture and society, or it can be very much embodied and a part of culture and a part of our lives and a part of society and a part of like making the world a better place and giving back to people who really like are in need, especially from the country that the practice you're doing is coming from. And I think that, Mm -hmm. that that's so important to really embody the teachings embody the practice and that's a lot more than just doing Surya Namaskara 
or, you know, chanting some mantras. <laughs> like that's not going to help you. That's not really what the <laughs> yoga is about. It's not transformational. What makes it transformational is that it's transforming you, which is transforming society, which is transforming the world, which is, you know, bringing everyone along, right? It's that bodhisattva nature, like you're uplifting everyone, not just yourself. And so I exactly. think you're the ultimate bodhisattva. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> bringing, bringing all these, these beautiful people with you and also inspiring so many yoga teachers I know, like myself and many, many others that I know are a part of your ambassadors, your team of ambassadors. You know, without your heart and your inspiration and your just like constant energy for the mission, <laughs> which I know <laughs> is challenging to you know, stay so consistent with that, that energy and that output um, to keep that vibration high. You know, it's so inspiring that, you know, we, of course, you say, you know, we're also uplifting you and, and sharing and everything, but, but it's definitely a two way, a two way exchange because you're, you're sort of the, the heart of the mission um, mm -hmm. in so many ways. And so it's really um, motivating for all of us too, to get behind you and, and help yeah, support this because it's so important. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate. I appreciate that. I never thought like that, but nowadays I am getting a little bit used to be the face um, yeah. of the organization. You know, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe if it's if it's easier to you know associate with the mission, I I don't mind anymore. Yeah, uh, it's good. But uh, you know, like to me, having like you guys so many people who are supporting me and our mission is like my really bonus feature of yoga keeps back i never knew when i started i had no idea right yeah. and then year by year like if i go somewhere like oh i have an ambassador there like if i go there i have a teacher i know so i have brothers and sisters everywhere now mm -hmm. thanks yeah. to yoga gives back and just like yourselves because this is such a selfless mission People who come to us uh, come to us for that purposes, not not to become like a celebrity, right? right. <laughs> no, you, no, you have make... celebrities coming to you to want to be a part of your mission. <laughs> we hope so. Yeah, no, yeah, you had so many like great it's... people. Like in your last um, your last event, online event, you know, Belinda yeah. Carlisle, oh, who was amazing. like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fantastic, one of my uh, yes. childhood heroes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And many right? others, many others. That's just one example, but so many yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful it's souls. True. But again, yeah. again, this work um, takes this uh, like celebrity or status off because mm -hmm. people come with other yeah. kind of different mission, not to sell their no. products or yeah. sell their names, right? So I yeah. think that's, I didn't know, like these are, these are the important lessons I've learned last 15 years. Mm -hmm. And then the power of this community and the intention and action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, I want to just, before we go, you have over 2,400 women and children in India that you're serving with a five-year commitment to each person. Wow. And um, and then you have the Sister Aid Program, which is providing microloans to 550 mothers 
and primary education to 600 young girls and or abandoned children. That's incredible. And um, some of your recent projects are uh, creating menstrual equity through the PAD project. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So if um, if you remember, the PAD project received the Oscar nomin Oscar Oscar award as a documentary, and the tagline was "Period should end a sentence." Not a girl's education, and I was just so moved to watch that. Mm. And uh, so Melissa Burton is a founder, and she's a high school teacher here in Los Angeles who pro- started this project and did a documentary. So one year we gave them um, a Namaste Award at the at the gala, and that's how we connected. So ever since then, I really wanted to bring that project to our villages because one of the first visits to India, I was very struck with the reality that girls and women were using rags for Mm -hmm. menstruation and the Mm -hmm. girls stopped going to school because there is no toilet. And I Mm -hmm. remember like as a young junior student, when you have heavy menstruation, just carrying pads in the bag and so the boys don't see, you know, like these things are very complex issues, Mm -hmm. but the girls even don't have toilets. So right. they don't go to school, which we understand, right? And they're using mm. rags. And the one girl was stabbed because this bloody rag was played by the rats on the street. And they are, you know, treated very impure. It's like a taboo. Mm. And so the, this girl was held responsible for this bloody ra- rag and she was stabbed. And I oh hear this, all these crazy stories. Mm-hmm. So it always stayed in my mind. So then I found out about the PAD project. Um, and we became, we created a relationship. And then luckily, a um, miracle happened. Somebody came to them and saying, we want to give grants for the PAD project at Nishta, which is where we support, we work. Yeah, in that's West yeah. So that's they cool. treated, they contacted us and said, let's do something. And we had like, you know, with a funder and grant, you know, give grant uh, organization, we did some meetings and it took three years because of the pandemic, everything slowed down. But now this April, we finally sent two machines and 20 women from our microloan program are trained to produce their own uh, pads. And wow. then our girls who are very good at designing, they already designed the packaging. Oh. So they already have a packaging and everything. And our goal is to make this into a sustainable profit-making social enterprise. So this, you know, village women have factory. They can produce their own pads, also sell it to Calcutta or national market. And it's a biodegradable, affordable pads. And then so the girls also can use these pads. Hopefully toilets are built by soon, but that's another project. (laughs) We can do everything. (laughs) But... um, yeah, and then hygiene education is very important because this will reduce like 50% unnecessary gynecological diseases if they use sanitary napkins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's Absolutely. very empowering. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's so good. And you also have a new uh, program called Project Shale. Am I saying it right? Shali. Shali. Incredible. Yeah. Which is yeah. offering special education assistance to help 800 poor rural children catch up on their education after 18 month break uh, because of the school closures, right? Due to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. That's yeah. yeah, and the government schools, you know, you know India well. They're very poorly funded, so the teachers come back and all these 
small children, they lost reading abilities, algebra, all the skills, because the parents either died of COVID or they were too poor to take care of kids, right? So poor kids were just running around, roaming around the village. They lost all the skills. So yeah, we helped this program. I was was very much aware of our own uh, privilege during the pandemic when we were we were spending our extra money, which you know most families don't have. We were spending our extra money for tutors, uh, math yeah. tutors and uh, French tutors for Jediah. Wow! So during the entire pandemic, he was he was speeding ahead uh, in his skills. <laughs> and That's uh, while most most children with who don't have tutors who are just sitting at home, you know they're behind. And I yes. was, I was like, this is an example of what privilege does, and how it creates an equity gap between between exactly. children. And then I think Harmony will mention next is a digital divide. Yeah, you know, it's talk. Yeah, kids. That's what I learned too. Like many poor children, especially the girls, they don't have access to even mobile phones because if there's a mobile phone in a poor family, father uses it first, and next mm-hmm. is the sons. Mm-hmm. So the girls are the last ones to use. So there's no data. So they used to share like a little phone among three or four girls to just catch up even high school studies. How can mm. they do that, right? Yeah. Right. So that's why we decided to create this digital center in a rural village where there is nothing right now. So if we can create a center with 100 computers, with internet skills and internet access, women can go into e-commerce to sell their products and you know, uh-huh. they already, we gave five computers so far. And the girls are helping illiterate farmers to apply for government assistance, for example. Yeah. So yeah. it's a ripple effect is a huge. So yeah, we incredible. hope to make it happen. That's the Women Rise Digital Center. Yeah. And it's yeah. providing uh, access to computers, internet, and skills training for 5,000 underserved girls and women. Exactly. That's, that was one thing I think that you brought this to my attention um, during one of the fundraisers that there was like farmers or like like certain women or certain groups could apply for a certain government, um, like, I guess, bursaries or things that the government was, was doing during COVID, but nobody had the internet or the computers or the yeah. skills to apply for the loans mm. that really needed exactly. them. And so then again, exactly. the, the people who don't have that access to those exactly. things don't, they don't know, they don't get the yeah. access because they don't have the exactly. access. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. then it's like the poor just keep kind of getting left out and overlooked yeah. and the funds aren't helping them anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it always the poorest poor poorest the other last to to be served unfortunately yeah but you know we can change we can change it yeah and you're um, you're yeah. actually doing the the work on the ground to change it which is incredible it's so inspiring with your support yes mm. yes with our support which brings us to the next <laughs> part <laughs> how can people get behind all of these wonderful projects and your mission what's coming up for you and and the different fundraising events or things that people can help support yeah so of course if you're a yoga student or yoga teacher you can always create like a fundraising event you know (laughs) it can be like tea party too just get together and just raise some money you know to give back just give everybody if everybody gives one class fee 
mm-hmm. which is 25 to 30 these days. Look, yeah. if 10 people gather, that's $300. Mm-hmm. That can give one girl a year of high school or college education. My God. That's so, amazing. Yeah, exactly. And that, it doesn't take that much. You know, it all depends on where you live. So mm-hmm. I have to be mindful that some countries' currency is very weak at the moment. So, but your action really makes a difference. No matter how big, how many you, you raise, mm-hmm. your intentions and coming together with this intention is very important. So check out our website, our social media, please. Follow Instagram, Facebook. We always keep posting our events. Um, mm-hmm. We have some events in September already. And uh, October 1st, Eddie Stern is planning a big Ashtanga event. Um, yeah, it's like an eight-hour yoga marathon, I think. Yes, I think <laughs> we'll announce it very soon. Online, um, right? <laughs> Yes, online, I think in person too. And in person. So people can join, they so can join grateful. online, they can join in person if they're in New York. Yeah. And yeah, donate yeah, exactly. to support Yoga Gives Back in the, the Women Rise Digital yeah. Center. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so grateful for that. And then we'll have our November 2nd is uh, 12th is our annual gala. With, I think it's going to be a whole day again. And yeah. we'll start the silent auction. Uh, the whole m- month of uh, November. So if you have a company or if you have a condo or Airbnb, <laughs> you know, you can donate. You know, th- these things really raise a lot of money. Yeah. Somebody gave us like one week of um, Joshua Tree uh, place last oh. year. And that was very popular. Yeah. yeah. So, I want to <laughs> bet on that one. I wonder if Melody did that. Yeah. No, I oh, my <laughs> but I know like uh, Kathleen Kessner, she did a vegan cooking yes. course. I cooking. think that she, yes, exactly. she offered. She did. And, yeah. Yeah. So anybody can like, offer anything like that mm. and we have um, a golden doodle that we could give <laughs> we could loan <laughs> out <laughs> loan? Um, give away therapy dog therapy dog that's right energetic. free therapy dog no not free you have to bet on it you have to it's, bid, yeah, bid, have to the... bid. yeah and the money all goes <laughs> to the children and you can have this miserable dog no. <laughs> so sweet <laughs> Yeah. Her heart would break yeah, so... if you lost your dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's a great thing. Like offering a service or product or vacation or anything for the silent auction that's going to happen. And and people bid online, do they? Yes. Yeah, we, yeah. we're creating online bidding. So you can do mobile. You know, these things all blossom during the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> God, you know. Yeah. So we have those technologies now. So, yeah. And usually during the global gala, we do like there's a bunch of different panels and yoga classes and kirtans yeah. and different amazing events that people can also attend with their donation. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then we usually uh, present Namaste Award to somebody very special who has, yes. act, you know, who is a leader in the humanitarian philanthropy activist world with some yoga connection usually yeah listening to muhammad yunus last year was really inspiring it was so oh great he was he was amazing yeah i i definitely was there listening to him and who was who were some of the other people that you've given the namaste award to so filmmaker david lynch 
Oh, Ryan yeah. continues to be so inspiring. He always joins our global gathering for India in June now mm. to talk about his experience of Maharishi, Maheshi, yeah. Yogi, nice. Yogi, and uh, his uh, TM, and also Alanis Morissette. I would like, love to have her back again. Yeah. Um, good, and good the PAD project. <laughs> yeah, the PAD project and uh, Jack Confield and Trudy Goodman. That's oh. right, I remember Malik- that. Also, Malika Chopra and uh, Primo Shah, who was the head of, um, founder of uh, Kiva. Um, a lot of people know about Kiva as a microfinancing online platform. They probably raised $2 billion now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so inspiring. Such inspiring events to attend. So that will be in yeah. November 12th. Yes, yes. We'll start announcing it very soon. Okay, great. Wonderful. And, uh, yeah. Thank you so much for, thank yeah. Thank you. And people can find you well. at yogagivesback.org and mm-hmm. yogagivesback on Instagram. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. Yeah. That's really, Good. it's your, the, your work is inspiring and your dedication is awesome to see. <laughs> thank you. And uh, I thank you for your presence in the world. Thank you so much for having me and sharing the mission and work. It's our pleasure. And I'm sure people will continue to hear more about it over the next few months because I'll definitely be posting too about it. So, yeah. Thank you so much. much. (laughs) Don't forget, doors close for Ancient Breathing this Monday. So you have about... 24 hours or maybe a little more depending on when you're listening to this podcast to get inside my ancient breathing course Uh, doors are closing real soon so don't wait don't delay it's time to jump in you have lifetime access as well as an invitation to join me in future live classes there's an amazing payment plan invest in yourself invest in your wellness invest in figuring out what is the best pranayama breathwork practice for you design your unique pranayama practice based on your constitution with my help my guidance and my input we're going to meet together for the next seven weeks in live classes and then you also get the bonus of a six-month membership to my inner circle where you'll get continuing support for the next six months after the program so jump on in. It's an amazing offer this time with an incredible bonus and I hope to see you there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony with me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Breaking waves There's a heart